Welcome to the Liquid Church Podcast, a place where you can hear the timeless truth of God's Word in a way that's culturally relevant and cutting edge. Today, you're tuning in for our special series, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, an eight-week journey designed to help you develop a deeply rooted spirituality in Christ. It's our hope this message will help you discover how God's story relates to your own and that you will leave feeling encouraged. Thanks for joining us today and enjoy the message. There's so much more to your story than what's on the surface. God is calling you to dive deeper, to see how your joys, losses, dreams, and experiences have shaped you. What will the Holy Spirit speak to your soul? through Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Good morning, Liquid Church. Hey, great to see you guys. Hey, have I told you lately that I love you? I really do. I love you guys. I love being your pastor. And it really thrills my heart to see our church family together. In fact, can we just send some love to our live locations and church online? Make some noise for you guys. Love seeing you guys. So excited you're here for the kickoff of this eight-week series called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And I told you it's a discipleship course. It's based on a best-selling book by my friend Pete Scazzaro from New Life Fellowship in Queens, New York. Queens in the house. And Pete was a mentor to me, and I went through the course with him online during the pandemic, actually, with a group of pastors from all over the world. And it was, uh, I would say it's life-changing. I don't say that about a ton of stuff, but I really think this series has the potential to kind of awaken in you a much deeper intimacy with Jesus— as we go under the iceberg of our lives, slow down for silence and prayer and listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking. We actually believe at Liquid that God is still speaking today. Say amen if you agree. He wants to talk to you. So this series starts today. This is week one. If you're new, you've actually come at a perfect time to jump aboard. You're going to want to pick up your books today. If you didn't pick them up last week, there are three books that go along with the course. The main book, there's a workbook, but then there's also a, a, a daily devotional, and they're available in the lobby after today's service. Also, let me just encourage you, sign up for a small group if you aren't in one yet. Uh, for the next eight weeks, all our small groups, we're going to be diving deeper into this material, not just reading the book, but meeting in groups and processing the material and breakouts. So this course is really meant to be experienced in community. Here's why. You need to process what God is speaking to you alongside trusted brothers and sisters. We do that in small groups of eight or 12 people during the week. And here's the exciting news. Last week, we had hundreds of folks sign up to join a group. So this fall, we now have over 1,700 people in small groups taking EHS together. Give God a praise. That's awesome. It's awesome. Leaders, I'm so proud of you guys. You're on the front lines. It's not too late to join a group. Some are completely virtual. They meet over Zoom. Some are in person. Some are hybrid. Uh, unfortunately, if you're not in a group, you won't be able to access the live teaching by our pastoral team. Now, I'm going to tell you something. This week, somebody said to me, Tim, I don't have time for a group. I'm just going to read the book on my own. Can I just encourage you? Do not read this book by yourself. Otherwise, it's just information. What we're after is transformation. The goal is to grow in your firsthand experience of Christ. Not just have head knowledge about Jesus, but it happens best in community when you experience the material with others. For me personally, my small group was vital and helping me really process what God was saying to me. What, what it was is listening to the stories of other people helped me understand how God was speaking into my own story. So let me tell you how this works, okay? Every week, 
you want to come to church or go online, listen to the Sunday sermon. I'm going to preach a live sermon that introduces the main scripture, some key concepts. So you listen to the Sunday sermon, and then you read the matching chapters. So tomorrow, you open up the main book, and you read chapter one called The Problem of Emotion and Healthy Spirituality. Now, don't read ahead, okay? You don't want, this is the book you rush through to read. Read one chapter a week. Don't microwave it. Let it crockpot. Read it slowly. Let it simmer. Underline sentences that speak to you. Let it percolate. And then meet with your small group. Again, in person or over Zoom. And then myself, pastors Kyra and Karen, we're going to be doing live teaching for your groups over Zoom on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday nights. It's actually a combination of short teaching and then breakout discussion. Then the day after your group meets, you start the daily devotional. It's called Day by Day, and there's 40 days worth of short daily devotionals. So you can actually make room twice a day to just be with Jesus, making room for silence, stillness, and prayer. You're going to clear the clutter so you can really hear God's voice. Does that make sense? Guys, I'm telling you, it's going to be an exciting eight weeks. I can't wait to hear how God speaks to you. In fact, today we're going to end today's service with communion and invite God to really consecrate our time together. So church online, you're going to want to get some of your elements to get ready for communion. All right, let's jump in. Today, we are going to look at the problem of emotionally unhealthy spirituality. So let me start with a question. Have you ever um, looked at something that it just seems so good on the surface, only to discover that it was like a complete disaster underneath, okay? I'm listening to two um, podcasts right now. They're fascinating. One is called The Dropout. It's about a medical company called Theranos and its founder, Elizabeth Holmes, uh, who a lot of investors called the next Steve Jobs, the, the female Steve Jobs. Um, anybody hate having their blood taken at the hospital or like the doctors? Elizabeth Holmes was a brilliant young inventor with she had an incredible idea. She claimed to invent a revolutionary blood testing technology called the Edison box. So instead of jabbing people with painful needles and extracting tubes and tubes of blood, she claimed that with one tiny pinprick in your finger, she could take a single drop of blood and run hundreds of medical tests, helping prevent disease and giving you access to your medical records. Forbes magazine put Holmes on their cover and announced she's the first female billionaire and she's going to revolutionize healthcare. She recruited secretaries of state, military generals to be on the board at Theranos and catch this. She raised over not 900 million, $1 billion from Silicon Valley investors. There's just one problem. The technology never worked. A, a functional version of the Edison box never existed. It was just an idea, a dream but with no basis in reality. And on the surface, Theramos appeared to be this, the next apple of healthcare, but under the surface, it was rotten to the core. And the Security and Exchange Commission's just charged Elizabeth Holmes with massive fraud, and she is now on trial for her life. That's what the dropout's about. Prosecutors say Holmes, behind the scenes, lied to investors, gave inaccurate medical info to patients, told them they had cancer when they didn't, that they were miscarrying when they had a healthy baby bullied employees who were going to blow the whistle, manipulated the market, and deceived her own board. She actually flew on private planes all over the world, the cover of Forbes magazine, while her company culture grew brittle, brittle, toxic, and fell apart. Theranos went bankrupt from $1 billion to worthless. Thousands of people lost their jobs, and she lost every penny of her investors' money. A billion bucks. How can something that just, man, looks so great on the surface and fool so many people, become so unhealthy and toxic underneath. It's not just companies, right? It can happen in churches too, you know. 
The second podcast I'm listening to, or some of you have probably listened to, is The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which tells a tale of Mars Hill Church in Seattle, founded in 1996 by a charismatic pastor named Mark Driscoll. And the church had a very promising start, reached young Gen Xers at the time, and it grew rapidly to a church of over 15,000 people. They opened multiple campuses. They were reaching thousands for Christ in Seattle. This is a city that has more dogs than Christians, okay? And it grew into kind of this mega ministry with a popular podcast, millions of downloads. It was all about biblical preaching and evangelistic growth. And they, they baptized thousands of new believers. Again, on the surface, man, everything looked great. But in 2014, whammo, the church came crashing to the ground. The board had relational conflict. The pastor resigned. The campus is closed. And Mars Hill dissolved as a church. And some of you are like, man, what, what happened, bro? Another sex scandal? Nope. Pastors steal money? Nope. What brought Mars Hill down? It was a case study in emotionally unhealthy leadership. Behind the scenes, the pastor and board chose an authoritarian style that, that bullied believers, steamrolled over staff, and relationally shunned anybody who got in the way of the expansion of the church. For all the talk about being, we're on mission for Jesus, their pastor bragged that there was a pile of bodies under the bus. And at the time, staff leaders rationalized, well, thousands of people are getting saved, so the end justify the means. But mark this, under the surface, Mars Hill had this toxic culture that turned a blind eye to spiritual abuse, objectified women, protected power above all else, left a trail of broken, hurting believers in its wake. Another spectacular scandal and another black eye for Jesus. See, guys, I think the world kind of laughs. They say, see, Christians, they're just like the rest of us, you know? For all their pious talk about love and grace, church is just a religious business that operates on the same worldly principles. And, and how can something that seems so, so spiritually successful on the surface, led by gifted, smart people, grow so toxic underneath? This, my friends, is the problem of emotionally unhealthy spirituality. If you notice on the cover of the book, you see an iceberg. That's the symbol for EHS that represents how we're all kind of made up of these different layers that exist beneath the surface of our daily lives. And the thing is about icebergs is this. Only 10% is visible above the surface. Did you know that? That 10% represents the external activity of our lives, the, the decisions, behavior everybody can see. Hey, that's what Christians are. They're nice people. Uh, they, they go to church, they pray, they try to treat others with kindness and respect. But notice about icebergs, 90% is hidden underwater. And that 90% represents what's really going on deep beneath the surface of your life. There's things we can't see. There's hidden motives, your, your fears, your jealousies, your, your sadness, your anger, your, your shadow side that actually only come out in times of stress or pressure. And guys, I'm just telling you, this is what Jesus wants access to. He wants to transform your inner world. The truth is, most Christians in most churches, we focus on the top 10% of the iceberg. We engage in helpful things like worship, like prayer, Bible studies, fellowship. That's great. But it really only scratches the surface. So a lot of Christians mistakenly believe, I'm doing fine, man. Things appear in order on the surface. But in reality, their relational world is falling apart because their interior world is unexamined. Huge swaths of our soul remain untouched and untransformed by Jesus. And so we stay stuck, emotionally immature Christians who have a tip of the iceberg spirituality. 
Can you just hear my heart as your pastor? I don't want you to stay a baby Christian, skimming the surface of faith. I want you to go deeper, under the iceberg. That's what EHS is about. As we invite Jesus to go under the iceberg of our lives and give him full access to your interior world, that's how you mature emotionally and you grow deeper spiritually. Now, I want to open our Bibles and show you what I'm talking about in real time. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app on your phone, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. And this is a story I want to share about King Saul. Uh, King Saul is a case study in emotionally unhealthy leadership. A little background, Saul was the first king of Israel, and he was a gifted man. He was chosen by God. He was anointed by God. He was a strong leader, very successful as he led God's people Israel in battle. In other words, on the surface, everything looked good. But underneath, Saul was a little bit oblivious, (laughs) emotionally unaware. He's a man of action, but he lacked a deeper contemplative life with God. He wasn't aware of his iceberg. He didn't See his fears and insecurities, and and he's very dangerous as a leader who's unaware. Read with me, 1 Samuel chapter 15, we'll start at verse 7, it says this, Then Saul attacked the Amalekites. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag, and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good, these they were unwilling to to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, everybody say weak, weak, they totally destroyed. Now let me give you a little background pause here. Uh, King Saul had been told by God to actually destroy the Amalekites. That's how they rolled in the Old Testament. And they were kind of a wicked, violent, barbaric tribe. And God said, wipe out everything that belongs to them. But notice Saul destroys the army, but he saved a little something, something, didn't he? He saved the cattle, he saved the lambs, everything that was useful to him. (laughs) In other words, Saul was pragmatic. He said, God, I'll do half of what you ask of me, but I'm going to keep the other stuff that's valuable to me. You know, the spoils of war. I may want hamburgers for my men later. It says, then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. Now, Samuel's the prophet who speaks for God. And God said, I regret. Everyone say regret. I regret that I've made Saul king because he's turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was what? Angry. And he cried out to the Lord all that night. So God has a very strong emotional reaction to Saul's half-hearted obedience. God feels regret. He feels anger. Samuel cried out to the Lord all night. And it says, early in the morning, Samuel got up, went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. And now this is where you're going to see his true colors start to come out. Watch this. There he has set up what? a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. So there's under the surface of Saul, there's this, there's this ego, there's this pride, there's this vanity, a, a spirit of glory and self-promotion. He's like, look at me, King Saul, hashtag blessed. Even though God gave me a victory, I'm going to set up a monument in my honor. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, Now, this is amazing. This is so funny. This is like the church I grew up in. The Lord bless you, brother. I have carried out the Lord's instruction. In other words, watch how Saul's trying to spin this. He's trying to pretend everything's okay with some religious jargon. Hey, the Lord bless you, my brother. Blessed and highly caffeinated. Praise God. I did everything the Lord asked. In other words, he's a spiritual poser. But Samuel sees through it. He said, what then? 
is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Samuel's calling Saul on the carpet. He says, oh, no, 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 not so fast. You didn't obey God. You kept something, something for yourself. And Saul answered, me? No, me, never. The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle, the sacrifice of the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Do you notice the blame shifting? BS doesn't just stand for Bible study. This is some blame shifting going on here. Samuel says, Saul, you're the king, bro. What happened? And Saul's like, "Ah, the, the soldiers did that, not me. I mean, they just wanted to keep a few, but we totally destroyed everything else. He blame shifts, he rationalizes. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Enough, stop. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Sit down. All right. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord himself anointed you king over Israel. And he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy these wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you've wiped them out. Here's my question, Saul. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I, but I did obey the Lord, Saul said. Listen to the, the rationalization, the self-deception. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites. I brought the king back. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plain. The best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them. But Samuel replied, and this is probably a famous verse you may have heard. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? In other words, does, does he delight in, in worship services and in Bible studies as much in actually hearing him and obeying him? Listen to this key verse. To obey is better than what? Sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. Now, this is important. I want you to circle that word heed in your Bible. The Hebrew word heed actually means to listen. What's better than anything? To actually listen to the voice of God. What's Saul's greatest sin? On the surface, Saul looks like he's serving God. He's praying, he's leading, he's making sacrifices. He does some of what God wants on the surface. But deep below, he's skimming on his spirituality. He's not even aware of his shadow side, his his motives. And so he gives God this half-hearted obedience. And so Samuel delivers a verdict. Look at verse 23. For rebellion is like the sin of divination. He's like, this is as bad as witchcraft. Arrogance. You think you're humble? It's like the evil of idolatry. Because you, Saul, have rejected the word of the Lord. God has rejected you as king. Bro. Do you see what's happening? Saul just got impeached by God. (laughs) God's like, you're not even fit for office anymore. Turn in your crown. God's like, you lost your leadership because even though you're outwardly successful, inwardly you're not humble enough to slow down, sit, heed, listen to my voice, and obey me. And this must have shocked Saul into, like, reality. Because in the last verse, he finally admits the truth. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command in your instructions. Now listen carefully to these words. Last verse, what was behind all of this? What was driving Saul deep under his iceberg? Listen to this. I was, let's read this together. I was afraid of the men 
And so I gave in to them. What's driving Saul's leader? Fear. Specifically, fear of man. Saul was a world-class people pleaser. I, I, I just felt pressure for my team and what the others think. Yeah, so I caved. I compromised. It's like Saul has some vague awareness of like some things swirling around in his soul. This insecurity, this controlling fear of what people might think of him, the need to be popular with everybody. Catch this, guys. Saul is king over Israel and he has the emotional maturity of a middle school girl. The reality is Saul is shallow. He's unaware of his interior life, and he's really not paying attention to God. Oh, oh, he's got a head knowledge of what God wants, offering sacrifices. But he doesn't have a heart inner knowledge, totally surrendered to the Lord's will. Think of it this way. There's a gap between Saul's role and his soul. His role as a king and his soul before God. Saul's doing for God is far outpacing his actually being with God. He has more leadership activity going on in his outer life than his inner life can sustain. And because he failed to pay attention to his soul, the results are disastrous. Now, contrast this with King David, who actually succeeded Saul. Who the Bible, you guys know, describes David as a man after God's own. Why? He was a murderer, he's an adulterer. How's he after God's own heart? Well, when you read the Psalms David wrote, you quickly see that David is emotionally aware of what's going on inside of him. I read the Psalms every day, and in the Psalms, I'm always surprised by David's deep emotion that he's sharing with God. You see David saying, God, I'm angry. You see him dancing with joy. You see him saying, I'm depressed. I'm downcast. You see him broken and repentant. Forgive me, God. I'm a wicked man. You see him rejoicing, God. You've forgiven and restored me. You see the whole gamut of emotions. And most importantly, David is authentically broken and transparent before God and other people. He doesn't fake it like Saul does. He's transparent. I mean, who else would commit adultery and murder and then say, you know what, I'm going to put it in a song that people can sing in church. That's Psalm 51. <laughs> At the same time, David has this deep passion for God. He's, he's hungry for God. He, he writes music. He writes songs. He writes poetry. He holds nothing back emotionally. And all through scripture, you sing King David saying, I'm going to be silent. I'm going to still my soul before God. You never see this with Saul. In fact, you know what happens? Saul eventually winds up depressed and actually grows mad with jealousy. And in his last acts, he's chucking spears at David's head because he's so jealous of the young guy. And this is an emotionally unhealthy king. This would be a toxic CEO. <laughs> and that's because Saul is operating not out of the Holy Spirit, but out of a false self. Have you ever heard of that? False self is the personality that you and I project to God and others to impress them to survive perhaps a conflict or avoid exposure for who we really are or just get our way. <laughs> and the reality is all of us have a false self. It's like the immature, often childish, broken part of our soul. And Jesus like, I want access to that. That below the iceberg stuff that I want to rip up by the roots and transform with my love. It's the part of us that's fearful, <laughs> of what people think, uh, defensive, why, why, why are you blaming me? Self-promoting, like Saul, blame-shifting, it's not me, it's Clint. Manipulative, I tell half, 
half-truths. You know what half-truths are? They're half-lies. <laughs> uh, it's the people-pleaser. It avoids showing weakness or vulnerability, and it's deadly. It's not self-aware. And this is so important if you want a church or a family to be emotionally healthy. Because when you sprinkle religion and power into the mix, man, there is a lot more complex false self to dismantle. <laughs> think of the Pharisees who killed Jesus, and they're like, I think we're doing God a favor. Very easy to be self-deceived and have a religious veneer over things to excuse it. Saul's chosen by God. He's gifted by God. He's anointed by God. But because he failed to pay attention to the under the iceberg, his motives, he failed to confront his false self, God impeached Saul. I have rejected you as king. Catch this. Shipwrecked his life. Saul actually lost his leadership because he wouldn't make room to slow down, really listen to the voice of the Lord in his life and obey. Now, just be honest, guys. Can, can anybody relate at all to this? No, no, I'm not like Saul at all. I would never be Saul. <laughs> I, I, I do. I do. Guys, I do all sorts of things that are motivated by getting people's approval. Any approval addicts out there? Okay, I'm Tim, I'm an approval addict. <laughs> Like so, I can be tempted by my pride towards, you know, how do I look? Is self-promotion? Will, will this post make me look good on social media? I notice that my tendency, my default, is to charge ahead with doing a lot of religious activity, doing stuff for God, like writing sermons and stuff. And I can kind of neglect being with God, actually just making room to quiet down and open my interior life to Christ. And let me tell you something. When that gets neglected, watch out. Confession. I've got a mini Saul inside of me but so do you, <laughs> and so do you. We all do. It's so easy to live, go through life like Saul, being one person at church, bless your brother, and a whole nother person at home, you got it, <laughs> or, or making decisions based on what other people would think, or not making room in your life to just be still and listen to the Lord. The truth is, guys, you go to your church your whole life and grow in Bible knowledge. You can read books. You can sing worship songs. But it doesn't guarantee you will grow into a more loving, humble, approachable, broken, teachable person who loves God and, and loves others well, which is the whole heart of the Christian life. Can I tell you about a man... I'll call, I'll call him George. That's not his real name, okay? But he was a real person who attended our church. This was over a decade ago. Our church was first starting out. George was a sincere Christian. I know that. He knew his Bible very well. Uh, very devout, very sincere guy. Faithful to his wife. Uh, never cheated. I, I just, he sent his kids to Christian school. But he's also dangerous. Kind of tough to be around. Uh, George had a pretty low EQ. You guys know what EQ is? Emotional intelligence. In other words, he lacked self-awareness, and he was blind to how others experienced him. And so every week after service, I'd, I'd watch George corner people in the lobby and kind of invade their personal space, you know? I'd come over and like, George, you want a breath mint? You know, just give a little hint or something. Never could get it. He would take that as a cue to corner me, in which he would critique the sermon. Why didn't you use this verse? I don't know why I'm using the KJV. Now, George was highly opinionated. Uh, he was in a small group, and the leaders had challenges because he was always spouting his opinion about politics and, and race with very little sensitivity to the diversity of others. He stepped on a lot of toes, heard a lot of feelings. We're always putting out fires. And whenever we talked with him, he was defensive, judgmental, touchy. It made me sad. He would often steamroll over his wife. 
whenever they were together, and she would actually try to share something, he would say, yeah, what, what Doris really means is, and he'd actually cut her off mid-sentence and speak over her. And you could just kind of see his wife kind of like her shoulders, just, she just kind of shut down emotionally. I remember Colleen saying, I just feel so sorry for her, Tim. And it was so strange to me. Because on the surface, I have zero doubts George loved Jesus. We'll see him in heaven. He read his Bible. He volunteered. He tithed. He came to church. All looked okay on the surface. But everybody avoided George because they knew he was emotionally unsafe person. He wasn't self-reflective. He didn't have any curiosity to say, um, hmm, I wonder what it's like to be on the other side of me. And he often judged people for not agreeing with his views. It was so sad. George actually ended up having uh, so many conflicts at church. Things would blow up. He, he, didn't, he didn't know how to resolve conflict in a humble way. It was always be aggressive. So eventually he just left the church. And I remember when he was leaving, he said, well, Tim, I was like, I'm so sorry. He said, George, you know what? Don't, nothing. I take this as a badge of honor. Jesus said we'd be persecuted for telling the truth. And he just moved on to the next church. What's my point? Guys, there's a crisis in the modern church. We are full of immature Christians who have a tip of the iceberg spirituality. Saints who know scripture, but they don't know themselves. The truth is, emotional health and spiritual maturity are linked together. And it is impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Like, how can you love? How can you authentically love God and others, which he said is the whole point of life, when people experience you as angry or always anxious? <laughs> how can you live in the freedom of Christ when you're controlled by the fear of what people think? See, there's all these hidden dynamics swirling underneath the iceberg of your interior life, and if you don't slow down and invite Jesus into what's really going on inside you, you get stuck as a spiritual infant. You will repeat the same patterns over and over and fail to mature into a spiritually mature adult. You know, in our EHS small group, Pete shared how one of the church members in his church actually described this in his life. He said, I was a Christian for 22 years, but instead of being a 22-year-old Christian, I was a one-year-old Christian 22 times. I just kept doing the same things over and over and over again. Guys, I got good news for you today. Your God loves you so much that he wants to take the Saul out of you and crucify the mini Saul in you and me, that tendency we have to pretend to live a shallow life, to go through kind of the religious motions in church where we follow God on our terms, not his. God wants to make you and me like King David. Men and women who are fully alive after God's own heart. We're going to talk about David next week. But this week in your group, you're going to read about 10 symptoms of emotionally unhealthy spirituality. I don't have time to go over them. You'll read about them in chapter 1 this week before your group meets. But I want to challenge you in a moment of honesty to circle the one or two that are most relevant to your life today. Do you want to hear my top two? As long as you keep it here, don't share this with anybody. The first one I struggle with, actually, is ignoring difficult emotions of anger, sadness, or fear. Again, I'll just be honest with you guys. I have a hard time. I don't know if it's like my family origin or just as a man. I just have a hard time being honest <laughs> with myself about the feelings, hurts, and pains that are beneath the surface of my life. There, 
I guess there's a reason for that. Growing up, I was taught feelings are unreliable. Don't trust your feelings to me. Christians should never be angry, sad, or afraid. If you do, there's probably something wrong with your spiritual life. We should have the joy, 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 joy down our heart. The problem, of course, is that view is not biblical. I mean, think of Jesus, who we follow. Jesus was a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. He actually wept when he lost friends. He got angry. He flipped tables over, we saw last week. And Jesus experienced great joy, and, and he felt deep grief. In other words, to feel a range of emotions is part of what it means to be human and made in the image of God. And what I've learned is that if I ignore my God-given emotions, I actually end up like Robot Tim. And I miss the many ways that the Holy Spirit is speaking to me under the iceberg of my life. For instance, there was a season when I was, found myself getting really mad at my kids. Not, not just frustrated. I get it. All kids are frustrating. I get it. You're like, it's so unique. I was mad. <laughs> but as I spent some time processing my anger with God and with my wife, the Holy Spirit revealed that I wasn't actually mad. In reality, I was sad about the struggles they were having at the time. I want you to catch the connection between mad and sad. Anger is a surface emotion. I had anger on top, but there was actually grief underneath. I never realized I had all these unspoken expectations about how my parenting should look and how my kids should respond. It all came out of my family of origin, and that God was actually calling me, Tim, I want you to actually let go of your expectations. Grieve that loss because your kids are different and you're different than your dad and actually trust me with your children. See, God's often speaking to us. He's shouting at us from under the iceberg of your emotional life. The question is, will you take the time to listen? That's the second symptom I struggle with. Doing for God instead of being with him. By nature, I'm an activist. I like to do great things for God and, and get people uh, to get a, catch a vision for the kingdom. And I, I tend to evaluate my spirituality based on how much ministry is happening in my life. Now, on the one hand, that's great, right? But when my activity, my doing for God, isn't balanced by contemplation, time being alone with God, I can become like Saul. Doing the right things for the wrong reasons. Last week, I told you about my brush with burnout, right, in, in uh, fall of 2019. I became so busy doing very helpful things for God. You'd be like, look at Tim. Wow, he's a spiritual superstar. He's preaching sermons. He's writing books and doing interviews, guest speaking here. That I started skimming spiritually on my devotional time with Jesus. I was reading the Bible, but I was reading it for message preparation instead of letting the Bible read me. And if you asked me to draw a sketch of where my activity level was in, was in relation to my contemplation, my inner life with Jesus, here's what it would look like. Pete said, draw it out, Tim. So I did. There it is. <laughs> I put on a balance. And you could see my doing for God. Man, I was very busy. I was so zealous, but I was way out of whack. My doing for God far outweighed my being with Jesus. And that's a dangerous place to be. You got to understand something about how the gospel works. Understand something. Work for God that isn't nourished by a deep interior life with him becomes easily corrupted with ego and power and needing approval from people and worldly ideas of success. And over time, this is what happens. Watch this. Our sense of worth shifts from God's unconditional love for us as sons and daughters in Christ to my works and my performance, and you lose touch with grace. You know what happens? 
the joy of Jesus dries up. You ever go through a dry season, you're like, I'm just not feeling it anymore. And we become human doings, not human beings. Have you ever served in a church or ministry and gotten burned out? Anybody? Just anybody else burned out? My guess is things got out of balance. <laughs> the reality is you can't give what you don't possess. And if Jesus isn't regularly refreshing your soul with his love, how do you think you're going to love others authentically from the heart? But that's me. How about you? Be honest with yourself and your group this week. What symptoms of emotion and healthy spirituality do you see in your life? Because over the next eight weeks, I just want to challenge you to take a peek inside and invite Jesus under your iceberg. What EHS is going to teach us to do is combine two very powerful forces. The first is emotional health. Some of you are like, what's emotional health? It's defined as your ability to be self-aware and love others well. And so that be includes things like becoming aware of your shadow side, your blind spots, your triggers. I don't know why my parents act like that. I'll never act like that. Why am I acting like that? <laughs> How your family origin impacts you. How do others experience me? And when you combine emotional health with contemplative spirituality, what's that, Tim? It sounds like a monk. It's just slowing down your life to be with Jesus. Through silence and stillness and scripture, you invite God under the iceberg and he speaks in the depths. When you bring those two together, that combo can spark a spiritual revolution in your life. I'm telling you, for some of you, if anybody here today is like, I feel stuck, Tim, in my journey with God. I feel stalled. I feel apathetic. Anybody feel stuck? you know, scattered or fragmented or disoriented. We all do after COVID. <laughs> or anybody here feel constantly tired, like I'm just always physically tired, I'm spiritually worn out, I'm emotionally exhausted. The reality is most American Christians actually pray and commune with God very little. It's like a one-inch deep spirituality where you feast on Sunday, but then you starve Monday through Friday. So each week we're going to teach you how to make room for silence and stillness in your life with Jesus. Can I show you how it works? Okay, let me get a drink here. This is going to buckle up because I'm going to demo something here. And if you have a phone, pull it out. After your group meets this week, the morning after, you begin using this day-by-day -day devotional. 40 days of devotions. It's got a scripture, a short reading, and then a question to consider. And you do this twice a day. Once in the morning, you do once in the afternoon or evening. And don't get freaked out. It can be as short as five minutes or 15 minutes. It's up to you. Be flexible. The main goal is I'm going to pause throughout my day to experientially rest in the presence of Jesus. The key verse for this is the psalmist that he writes this. He says, be still and know that I am God. Now, this is an ancient spiritual discipline where you quiet down your soul you find a comfortable place to be, you ground your feet, you center your thoughts, and you reorient your soul around the love of God. And you're going to see every devotion begins and ends with two minutes of silence and stillness. So I suggest you actually find a good place to sit down or kneel, and I actually suggest you set a timer. Can I show you how I do it? Siri, set a timer for two minutes. There you go. There's my two-minute timer. And then what I do is I'm quiet for about 15 seconds, and I begin breathing like this. Quieting my soul, 
Sometimes I'll put my hand out in a posture to receive the Father's love. And then I do what's called a breath prayer. You guys know what a breath prayer is? It's just a word or two. For instance, my main breath prayer is I go like this. I go, Abba, I belong to you. Jesus, I surrender to you. Holy Spirit, speak to me. Abba, I belong to you. It's a breath prayer. It's a way of quieting your soul, releasing your anxieties, actually focusing on the presence of Christ. Now, this is going to be difficult for some of you because most of us have a hard time sitting still, right, and quieting our minds. But I want you to stick with it because it's very powerful because you're clearing the noise and making room for Jesus to be the center of your life in the middle of your day. And that is no small thing. I mean, we got to live this busy, noisy world of distraction. It's revolutionary. In fact, I like what Mother Teresa wrote in this week's devotional. She said, we all must take the time to be silent and to contemplate, especially those who live in big cities like London and New York, where everything moves so fast. I always begin my prayer in silence, for it is in the silence of the heart that God speaks. My timer went off. Can you hear it? Two minutes of silence. And then there's a scripture reading, very short, so that you can meditate and chew on what God's saying. And then there's a question to consider. And you may want to actually even write out a prayer to God to that question. Whatever works best for you, there's flexibility. Understand, this is just going to take you some time to get used to, to practice. There's flexibility. But it's so vital that you practice this and practice it to make progress with. Very few of us actually have daily rhythms. So rearranging your day, like to stop and be with Jesus, Tim, twice a day, I know, major shift. Again, give yourself grace. This starts the day after your group meets, and if you miss a day, just pick up with the next devotional, okay? Remember, the goal is simple. You just want loving union with your Jesus. It's devoting time to communion with your Creator and invite Him under the iceberg of your inner world. Over the next eight weeks, the goal is to exercise your muscles, your stillness muscle, your silence muscle. Everybody flex. Everyone say silence, silence, stillness. Do it twice a day to increase your appetite to be with Jesus and cultivate this this deeper relationship with him. It's going to be life-changing, guys. I'm telling you. As your pastor, at the end of this, what am I hoping? Here's what I'm praying. I'm praying some of you are actually going to start feeling relaxed and unhurried amidst the pressures of your daily life. I'm praying some of you feel the insecurity and that you're going to be more anchored in the love of God and able to hear his spirit speaking. I pray that you're going to grow in your ability to remain thoughtful and loving, even when I'm triggered by people, (laughs) and establish some sustainable rhythms of Sabbath so you're not chronically stressed or exhausted. I want you to grow in self-awareness so you can offer your life as a gift to the world because that's how God designed you. Amen? So to kick off our EHS experience, I thought this week, let's start with communion. Communion literally is coming into union with Jesus. Newsflash, Jesus is here, you know, right? (laughs) Like wherever two or three are gathered, I'm right there. Jesus is here. He's real. He's been waiting to talk to you. And so you should have gotten a communion cup on the way in. You can take that out and peel off the foil. 
The cracker represents the body of Christ broken on the cross out of love for you. The cup represents the blood of Jesus shed to forgive your sins, actually to cleanse your heart. Can I just tell you, if you feel frazzled today, let God refresh you. If you put your trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you're invited to have communion. But let's first do this. Let's take a moment just for silent prayer and confession. Tell him where you need renewal. Tell him where you've been like Saul, and then we'll partake together. Father, we confess some of us feel overwhelmed right now. (laughs) Some of us feel anxious. Some feel guilty. Some feel apathetic. And that's why we're coming to you for refreshing. With these these elements, God, right now we're holding in our hands the evidence of your great love. We thank you, Jesus, for laying down your life on the cross and dying in my place so that I could come to life spiritually and commune with you, my Father in heaven. Right now, Father, we confess any sin, we repent of them, we turn from them, and we invite your Holy Spirit to fill us afresh. Jesus, I ask you, would you crucify the mini Saul in me? I want a heart like David, fully alive, fully free, no pretending, no half-hearted religion. Jesus, we give you full access right now to every part of our iceberg. For the next eight weeks, we dedicate ourselves as a people to slowing down and making room to be with you daily. Holy Spirit, come and do a fresh work in us. We consecrate our groups to you. I ask for a spirit of safety, of vulnerability, transparency, and unity in these groups so we can grow deep roots in Christ together. Grow us, transform us, change us. In Jesus' name, everybody said together, amen. You can go ahead and receive communion. Thank you for joining us today. If you want to check out Liquid Church for a weekend service, small group outreach, or clean water trip, you can find out more about us online at liquidchurch.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, go ahead and subscribe or share it with your friends. Thanks again for listening.